Today, we are going to be discussing the recent confirmation of Joe Biden's new Supreme Court Justice pick, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Welcome to the first episode of the brand new Legalese podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, for those of you out there who haven't seen the video I posted or read the email I put out the other day, uh, this is the first video I am putting out uh, since I changed the name of the show from Categorical Imperatives to Legalese. So welcome to the show. Make sure to check out the video description for updated links to the show's new webpage, as well as its new home on places like Rumble.com. You'll also find a new support page for us over at Locals.com. Now, let's just get right to the story here. Uh, I realize a video about Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearing may not seem especially uh, timely. Uh, look, I wrote this episode over the weekend after that confirmation vote in the Senate was held. I, it took me so long to get to making it that I considered scrapping it, uh, since it was quite a few days ago. But I, I think this is really actually quite important to talk about. Uh, I thought just about everything the Republicans at the confirmation did was really fucking disgusting. And since I went out of my way on here to call out the incredibly shameful way the Democrats handled Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, it only seems fair I call out the Republicans for pulling the same kind of bullshit stunts that, to be honest, were only slightly less disgusting than accusing a nominee of being a serial rapist. Also, uh, since uh, uh, Justice Jackson, uh, well, Judge Jackson now, soon Justice Jackson, won't be joining the court for a few more months anyway, I, I have a feeling that maybe this video will become timely again in the period leading up to her uh, actually taking her seat on the high court. So, we are going to talk about why the Republicans' behavior at the Jackson confirmation was reprehensible, indefensible, and an example of complete, bold-faced hypocrisy, because this hearing was a textbook porking. And this was done by the party that claims to only be the victim of politicized borking. <laughs> While they seem to act suspiciously like the very perpetrators that they have rightfully condemned in the past in confirmation hearings. So I suppose this may be worth taking a moment just to clarify what exactly a borking is. <laughs> Now, in 1987, conservative judge Robert Bork uh, endured a virulent criticism uh, during his confirmation hearing uh, that was uh, just so uh, so lowbrow and so petty that his name has become a verb. That is to say, to this day, a nominee sidelined uh, by activists or petty uh, politicians is said to have been borked.
Now, I've come up with a working definition for what a borking is. So a borking is to disrespect or vilify a public figure, especially in order to obstruct a person's appointment to public office, or alternately to attack a candidate or public figure systematically, especially in the media. Now, it refers to the vicious attacks that were made at Robert Bork's character that were made largely by Senator Ted Kennedy and, to a lesser degree, Joe Biden, who, as the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee in both 1987 and 1991, oversaw and took part in the Borkings of both Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas. Now, the first and most well-known incident of Borking... ...during... Robert Bork's confirmation had to do with the following tirade that was made by Ted Kennedy against Judge Bork. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters, rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids, and school children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be censured at the whim of government. And the Republicans presently on the Judiciary Committee, including uh, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, both tend to think that a borking <laughs> that borking a candidate during a hearing is a cheap and petty cr- criticism from a desperate political actor with no substantive argument to level against the nominee. Of course, that only seems to apply as long as the nominee is a conservative. Is challenged in federal court. Here's my point. I was seven years old when Judge Robert Bork came before this body. I don't remember any of that. I wasn't (laughs) watching it as a seven-year-old. But uh, what we saw, I think the, the legacy of, of the Bork hearings continue to reverberate. Uh, his name has become a verb, the Borking of nominees. I think what we've seen today is an attempted Borking of Judge Amy Barrett. The problem is they don't have anything in your record that they can use to so badly misconstrue, to suggest that you're somehow going to fundamentally change America, that now they have to attribute to you the worst readings and most draconian misinterpretations of Justice Scalia. So we take Scalia. I want to discuss what this hearing is about and what it's not about. First, this hearing is not about the qualifications of the nominee. Judge Kavanaugh is, by any objective measure, unquestionably qualified for the Supreme Court. Everyone agrees he's one of the most respected federal judges in the country. He has impeccable academic credentials, even if you did go to Yale. And you served over a decade on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, often referred to as the second highest court in the land. So our Democratic colleagues are not trying to make the argument that Judge Kavanaugh is not qualified. Indeed, I haven't heard anyone uh, even attempt to make that argument. Second, this hearing is not about his judicial record. Judge Kavanaugh has over 300 published opinions, which altogether amount to over 10,000 pages issued in his role as a federal appellate judge. Everyone agrees a judge's record is by far the most important indicium of what kind of justice that nominee will be. 
And tellingly, we've heard very little today from Democratic senators about the actual substance of Judge Kavanaugh's judicial record. Now, to be fair, they are not wrong about this being a, a cheap and petty attack tactic, usually launched by politicians who are incapable of articulating any substantive criticism. Where they go wrong is that they think the only kind of criticism that constitutes unfair vilification is when it's Democratic politicians going after conservative justices. Now, I'm sure that anyone who would watch a video like this one is already uh, perfectly aware of the fact that Judge Jackson was confirmed last Thursday by the Senate. She was President Joe Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, and she was ultimately confirmed by a 53-47 vote in the Senate. Here we get a lovely picture of Biden with his chosen candidate moving in for a celebratory hair sniffing. And only three Republican senators joined all 50 Democrats in supporting her. Many of these specific objections that Republicans raised during Jackson's confirmation hearing were ridiculous and off-base. But another line of objection to her nomination was eminently reasonable, even if still disputable, and that is her judicial philosophy. Now, while GOP senators have every right to oppose Judge Jackson, the reasons that many of them gave were dubious at best. There was a key point during this hearing that was truly, truly repugnant, anathema to any notion of due process and rule of law. I am, of course, speaking about Senator Ted Cruz's charge against Jackson's prejudicial career working as a public defender when he indicated she has a natural inclination in the direction of the criminal. Because a public defender's heart is with the murderers and the criminals. That's who they're rooting for. That was every bit as disgusting and disgraceful as the public attacks made by the Judiciary Committee bringing entirely unsubstantiated claims of sexual harassment and sexual abuse against Justice Kavanaugh or calling Justice Kavanaugh unqualified because he used to like drinking and partying in college as though heavy drinking and wild parties is some exception to the American college campus experience rather than the major reason most kids go to college. And as we know, because the Democrats didn't even try to hide this fact, their real reason for opposing Kavanaugh was his judicial philosophy. And so, maybe even more so, uh, their contempt for the president who nominated him. Which is why it is so maddening when they choose to attack him by calling him a drunk and a serial rapist, which were simply not substantive criticisms. They were personal and superfluous attacks. And these attacks against Judge Jackson were every bit as contemptible as the worst Democratic borking. (laughs) 
Now, the Republican senators who had the gall to attack this woman for spending part of her career working as a defense attorney should genuinely be fucking ashamed of themselves. Much like the confirmation hearings for Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, these proceedings were already hostile before they even began based on the Republican distaste for the president making the appointment. I see no other conceivable explanation for their attacks against a candidate for her years of service working with the Office of Public Defenders, securing a civil liberty whose protection can be found in the Article 4 Privileges and Immunities Clause, as well as the 5th and 14th Amendment. And that is to say nothing of the fact that the existence of the Public Defender's Office, whose existence is an absolute procedural requirement, for a judicial system that fundamentally values the rule of law. And as John Adams beautifully stated, both in his famous Novangelist 7 letter and in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, ours is a government of laws and not of men. And that elegant concept at the heart of American constitutional republicanism was roundly rejected by proxy in the claims of the Republican Judiciary Committee members. And somehow, Ted Cruz's demagoguery managed to be topped by that of Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. He charged that Jackson might have wanted to defend Nazi leaders who were tried at Nuremberg for war crimes following World War II and even insinuated the spurious accusation that essentially constituted she had a sympathetic disposition towards Nazi war criminals. This was both disgusting and utterly absurd. Those who are familiar with the trial, the Nuremberg trial, would be able to tell you that while most of the British and Russian government officials who had any say in the matter, including Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin, insisted a trial was unnecessary and that all war criminals should just simply be lined up against a wall and summarily executed. Fortunately, Chief Justice Robert Jackson, who acted as the prosecutor for the International Tribunal, along with many of the uh, military officers who were involved, including General Eisenhower and Montgomery, who had a role in planning and holding this trial, insisted that the justice that we, the international community, must afford to these monsters must be these kind of same fair, impartial, public and speedy trial that we, uh, that we believe in and that they denied their victims. And in fact, after the trial, the international community, including many of those citizens and world leaders who had advocated for summary execution, later praised Judge Jackson for his courageous stance against foregoing a trial, especially his one non-negotiable condition for accepting the role of lead prosecutor. He said, You must put no man on trial before anything that is called a court, under forms of judicial proceeding, if you are not willing to see him freed, if not proved guilty. Now, furthermore, 
Senator Josh Hawley, whose entire career in national politics uh, seems to be one long argument for the wisdom of Grandpa Simpson's conviction that I'll be deep in the cold, cold ground before I recognize Missouri. He chose to attack, attack Judge Jackson on an incredibly misleading argument that Judge Jackson is appallingly soft, uh, appallingly soft on child pornography offenders. And even cursory scrutiny of his claims demonstrate his nature is mirrorless to the point of demagoguery. When analyzing Holly's statements about Judge Jackson, it is imperative to keep in mind that there is a wide variety of federal offenses that we gather under the general label sex offenses. In his critique of Jackson last week, Holly tweeted that he had quote, noticed an alarming pattern when it comes to Judge Jackson, Jackson's treatment of sex offenders, especially those preying on children. That is a misleadingly broad claim, and Holly is too smart not to know that. Before he became a senator for Missouri in 2018, Holly earned his JD from jail law school. He clerked for Chief Justice John Roberts, and he served as the 42nd Attorney General of Missouri. I can only attribute his disingenuous claims to malice and not an innocent ignorance of the law. Now, look, I realize that pointing this out is going to elicit a response from the right that the only people who could possibly defend her record in sentencing on these type of cases are akin to leftists who are condoning or even outright defending child grooming, which is why I am going to defer to Andrew McCarthy's critique of Holly's claims in two National Review articles that McCarthy offered. These are the reputations of someone whose conservative credentials and legal expertise both outpace Holly by any measure. Now, the issues raised most often during the confirmation hearing were her supposed softness in sentencing defendant convicted of offenses involving images of child sexual abuse. Now, as McCarthy explained in detail why Jackson's rulings in these cases were actually well within normal parameters. He starts out, to be sure, well-adjusted people, if they had to view these images as investigators do, would be sickened. Still, when we talk about consumers, we are not talking about the people engaged in the atrocious conduct that produces the images. It is rational to criminalize consumption offenses because they contribute indirectly, if usually unthinkingly, to the atrocious production conduct. If there were no market for the images, many fewer of them would be produced, and theoretically there would be less sexual abuse of children. Yet, the criminal law makes these kinds of distinctions all the time. The offender who commits a gruesome murder is orders of magnitude more culpable than the associate who helps him get rid of the murder weapon suspecting but not necessarily knowing what the weapon was used for. They're both guilty of crimes, and we might broadly refer to them both as being complicit in murder. But they're not nearly on par. People understand why the murderer gets life imprisonment, 
and his low-level conspirator gets a very light sentence. Now he goes on to say uh, in another article, After invoking the image of Jackson as indulgent of sex offenders who prey on children, Holly narrows his portrayal a bit. He says, quote, Judge Jackson has a pattern of letting child porn offenders off the hook for their appalling crimes, both as a judge and a policymaker. Now, this leaves the impression, McCarthy writes, that he is probably homing in on pornography rather than rape, abduction, and the like. Although he must know, even that is not clear because a good deal of such sexual abuse goes into the production of porn. In any event, after all the throat clearing, it emerges that Holly is not talking about offenders who themselves abuse children or even who produce pornography. He is referring to porn consumers. So... To pretend these are the same thing and can be spoken of under some large umbrella of sexual offenses against minors is to say that there is no difference between a guy who commits an armed robbery by brandishing a gun to gain compliance with a victim who uh, to gain compliance from a victim versus a criminal who would just simply shoot someone without warning and then take their money or valuables off the dead or dying victim. And even the spiciest moment of the hearing when Senator Blackburn asked her for a working definition of the term woman, and Jackson had an inability to give a definition, uh, this was arguably her least defensible statement of the entire hearing, but even still, this was a moment that only painted both sides in a negative light. Some might say that it is odd she can't define woman, Without a biologist, when the reason uh, this is not a straightforward question has to do with the fact that people such as herself who are incapable of giving such a definition cannot define the term because to them, gender is a social construct and not a biological one. What's more, another person who is definitely not a biologist is Joe Biden, but he is nominating Jackson because she is a woman. Yet, if you don't know what a woman is, you cannot be sure if you're a woman. So how in the world does Biden know that he nominated a woman? Now, to be fair, Biden's decision to make his appointment first and foremost on the basis of the nominee's race and gender is entirely understandable and rational when we consider how well applying that same criteria has previously worked out when considering how to dole out other incredibly important appointments. Now, the reason this shouldn't be viewed by Republicans as a win is because the question was asked entirely outside any context of knowledge and application of the law. Had Senator Blackburn followed up her initial question about what is a woman with a legally relevant question, such as asking how she can apply the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment based on sex, or the 19th Amendment, which granted women suffrage, or... How can you adjudicate issues of federal laws tied to Title IX, which is an amendment to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to add additional prohibitions against discrimination on the basis of sex, 
when considering a person seeking employment in educational institutions. But such relevant questions were never addressed. So while Jackson's answer, or lack thereof, definitely came across in a negative light and is an oddly ideological answer to the question, the question itself comes across as nothing more than some ideologue on the right playing gotcha games to make Justice Jackson look bad rather than to determine if she is a qualified candidate for the position she has been nominated to. And despite the fact, Republicans decided to criticize her along what I think were pretty shallow and pedantic lines. That's not to say there's no reason to oppose Jackson's nomination. Again, there is nothing wrong with Republicans choosing to vote against Judge Jackson's nomination. And in fact, there were valid concerns raised about Judge Jackson's nomination on entirely sensible grounds. And that is a disagreement with a judge's judicial philosophy, or in Jackson's case, a lack thereof. Now, I would contend that there is nothing inherently wrong with opposing a qualified mainstream nominee based on differences over judicial philosophy. And to his credit, there was one Republican on the Judiciary Committee who did express such an entirely reasonable reason for voting against Jackson's nomination, and that was from Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, who clearly stated that based on his opposition on such grounds by which he meant judicial philosophy, quote, he recognized that Jackson had impeccable credentials and is an extraordinary person with an extraordinary American story, end quote. And I am entirely in agreement with Senator Sass. She does have impeccable credentials, including graduating from Harvard Law School with her Juris Dr. Cum Laude. It's fair to say her experience is equally impeccable. After starting her career with three clerkships, including one with the justice she will be replacing, Associate Justice Stephen Breyer, she served as a federal judge on the United States District Court for the District of Columbia before she was appointed to serve on the United States Courts of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And if that last court I mentioned sounds familiar, it's because she was appointed to the same court that we saw Ted Cruz mention a moment ago uh, that Brett Kavanaugh served on. The court that Ted Cruz noted is generally considered the second highest court in the land. That is where Judge Jackson is currently serving. So, what exactly is it about her philosophy that leads someone like myself or uh, like Senator Ben Sass to say that she has, uh, you know, abundant qualifications and experience and yet still oppose her nomination. Well, let's start with her opening statement during her confirmation hearing where she said, quote, I believe in transparency, that people should know precisely what I think and the basis for my decision, end quote. That's a promising start. But where this gets interesting is that despite her promise of transparency during her recent appointment to the Circuit Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, she refused to discuss what her judicial philosophy was, like at all. Jackson was asked this standard question when she was before the Senate. She was specifically asked if she followed the living Constitution model. And she repeatedly refused to answer the question, and she told the Senate that she is, quote, 
bound by the methods of constitutional interpretation that the Supreme Court has adopted, and I have a duty not to opine on the Supreme Court's chosen methodology or suggest that I would undertake to interpret the text of the Constitution in any matter other than as the Supreme Court has directed, end quote. That answer was, at best, anything but transparent, and at worst, entirely nonsensical. She is bound to follow the precedent of the Supreme Court, but she is allowed to have her own philosophy on constitutional interpretation, yet she has no obligation to elaborate what that philosophy is. Now, this alone, I find to be disqualifying, especially since we consider that every conservative nominee since Robert Bork has been grilled by Democrats who have demanded the nominee answer questions detailing their judicial philosophy and opposing that candidate based on their judicial philosophy, which, again, I have absolutely no problem with, even when Democrats do it. Fine. But... As this issue has become so important, a failure to articulate a philosophy to me is no better than an articulation of a disagreeable philosophy. And, while I think it is unfair generally to judge a nominee based on claims made about them by the president who appointed them, or, or even worse, by past justices that they have clerked for and often sometimes have something of a personal attachment to, we saw this with Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, he had this kind of relationship with Anthony Kennedy. Amy Coney Barrett had this kind of relationship with Antonin Scalia. And it appears Judge Jackson had this kind of uh, relationship with Stephen Breyer. But what I will say is that when a judge refuses to articulate what their judicial philosophy is, even is, I do then think it is fair to turn to the words of the president who nominated them and consider the qualities that he said he expected in the person he appointed. And second to Joe Biden's insistence that gender and race are the most important considerations, his next most important criteria for a nominee was that, and I quote, they must follow a living constitution approach, including a broad view of unenumerated rights. Since Jackson had several opportunities to either affirm or deny that that description fit her approach, we have to assume that at the very least, Joe Biden is in no doubt that she falls in line with that criteria. And based on the sum total of her cases during her time in the federal court, I have no qualms about saying that her words there, in her opinions, strongly suggest she is very much a living constitution proponent. But what do you guys think? I would love to get your thoughts on this. Where do you stand on applying importance of judicial philosophy to a Supreme Court nominee? Does it bother you that Jackson refused to give uh, any transparency and clarity, and clarity on this issue? Or do you think it's reasonable to assume her philosophy based on her record of past opinions and the judicial philosophy that the president said he insisted his nominee advocate? Uh, let me know in the comment section below. And so with that, I think I'm going to call it a day. Uh, if I can remind you guys once more to check out the description and 
go find the new show page over on rumbleandlocals.com as well as the show's rebranded profiles over on Substack and Odyssey. You can also find links to the audio version of the show over at anchor.fm. And please uh, consider joining me and becoming a member over at Substack or Locals for just 2 bucks a month. And look, if you're not in a position to do that now, that's all right. I still very much appreciate you dropping by and giving me some of your time today all the same. And if you want to support the show for free, you can help to feed Al Gore's rhythm, or I mean the algorithm, by leaving a like on the video, share it on your favorite social media site, and send a link for this episode to a friend or two of yours who you think may enjoy my content. Until next time, this has been the Illegal Age Podcast, and uh, of, co- of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. Motherfucker.